I think that it is surely correct that the news headline rarely provides good news. If you watch television or read the newspaper, there's a lot of bad news to go around for any given day. But a few days ago, there appears to be good news in the headlines. And what we saw was the headline that the Canadian economy added 29,000 new jobs. Now that is news, at least on the face of it, to celebrate. 29,000 new jobs. But as you begin to read a little further, you find that most of those 29,000 new jobs that have been added to the economy are part-time jobs. So that doesn't look too good. And then when you hear that we lost 28,000 full-time jobs, then these numbers don't seem to be so good after all. Good news, unmitigating, absolute good news, is difficult to come by. And yet, this morning, I want to rehearse the good news of Jesus Christ, which is unmitigating good news. In fact, the Apostle Paul deals with this good news of the gospel in this book of Galatians. You will recall, if you will permit me to recount briefly the context, Paul, according to Acts 13 and 14, on his first missionary journey, went to Asia Minor, in the territory now known as Turkey, to places like Pisidina, Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe. He said he arrived there in Asia Minor in weakness, so that Paul, when he, be, when he went there, was sick, but they received him as an angel of God. And during his stay there, the Lord blessed the preaching of the word so that churches sprang up. But after Paul left, and it appears sometime before he went to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem council, there came men who were professing to be Christians, Jewish Christians. And when they came to Asia Minor, they began to teach that Paul's gospel of salvation by grace was incomplete. That Paul had failed to mention that if one is to be truly saved, they must also keep key elements of the Old Testament law, which included circumcision, purity laws, laws about washing, and so on. And of course, observing special days and feast days, and particularly the Sabbath. These that they must do if they are to be true Christians. And so Paul pens this epistle to the Galatians to defend the gospel. And in fact, from chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 21, what you have is a defense of the gospel. In fact, Paul refers to the gospel five times, at least five times in chapter 1, and some 12 times overall in the epistle to the Galatians. 
You find, for instance, in verse 6, he says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And here's the first account of gospel. He will mention the gospel in verse 6, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 11. The gospel that Paul refers to simply means good news. It was that which a runner who, after seeing his army victorious, he would run and bring this good news, this evangelion, this gospel to those who are waiting. It simply means to announce good news. And Paul takes this concept, this word, evangelion from the Greek, and he invests in it spiritual meaning. It is good news. Now Paul writes and concentrates on the gospel. In fact, you will notice he says, I marvel that you are turning away. You are, you are in fact acting like a deserter from the army, one who moves from a stated intellectual position or one who moves away or turns away from a commitment that he has made. I marvel, I am surprised that you are turning away from him so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which Paul verse 7 says is not another gospel. But there are some who disturb you, who trouble you, who, whose intent, he says, is to pervert and to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying that the people who have come and tell you that you, you need to keep the, these elements of the Old Testament law to be saved, they are perverting, they are distorting the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And then Paul makes a cutting statement, a sobering statement. He says in verse 8, if even we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, let him be anathema. He says again in verse 9, he repeats this, he says, if as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that then what you have received, let him be accursed. And this is strong language. It is the word anathema. It translates the Hebrew harem. In the Old Testament, when the Lord commanded Israel to destroy a nation, they were placed under the harem of God, under the curse of God, where they were not to take prisoners, but they were to exterminate the entire nation. Because, the, because that nation was under the divine curse. The, the cup of God's wrath had come to its conclusion. It, it was full. And so God would put this nation under the harem. Paul places anyone, even a spiritual being, even an angel from heaven, if he were to depart from the gospel that he proclaimed in Galatia, he should be placed under the ban of God, under the harem of God, anathema under divine curse. If the gospel then, according to Paul, at least implied by Paul, is such that it is of a fixed content that you cannot add to it or take away from it, and to do so would be to invite God's wrath, the question that naturally should concern us is what is this gospel 
this gospel that Paul goes to such length to defend. And what I'm going to do, I hope, then in your presence, is to tease out what Paul means regarding the gospel, at least in the, in, in the epistle to the Galatians. What is the gospel? I want to suggest that the gospel, according to Paul, as he writes to the Galatians, entails the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. Secondly, it entails the saving benefits that Christ accomplished on the cross. And thirdly, it includes the divine call of God. I want to just then take this time to unpack then these three major statements. The good news of the gospel, and here of course, this is redundancy because the gospel is good news, but you'll permit me to be redundant. The good news of the gospel concerns the central truth that Christ died and rose again for sinners. The gospel concerns the truth of Christ's death and resurrection for sinners. Paul gives us hints of this fact in the first chapter, where after he identifies himself as an apostle appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and he issues the standard greetings of grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Before he goes anywhere else, or even further, he skips over the prayer and thanksgiving that he would normally have given to God for the church in Galatia, and he says of our Lord, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Right here, we have the first statement, the first summary of the gospel. That is, the gospel concerns the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. This is at the heart of the gospel, that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. In fact, you will note that Paul will continue throughout this epistle to point to this fact that Christ died for sinner as at the very heart of the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There again, Paul draws us to the heart of the gospel, that it is Christ died for us. Christ gave himself for us. If there is any doubt that the heart of the gospel consists of Christ's death and resurrection, and by the way, when we talk about Christ's death, we imply his resurrection, because the, the, the death of Jesus Christ makes no theological sense apart from his resurrection. And when we talk of the resurrection, we imply the death of Christ because resurrection has no, no sense, makes no sense without his death. And that is why in, in some theological works you will see 
when there's a reference to the crucifixion and the resurrection, you will see this, it's hyphen. So you will see the crucifixion, resurrection. There's a hyphen there because the, the writer wants you to conceive these as one event. The death of Christ and his resurrection form one event. They, cannot, they can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated. Now, how do we know that the gospel, apart from what we find here in verse 4 of chapter 1 as a summary statement of the gospel, how do we know that the gospel consists of the death of Christ? Well, if you were to turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is concerned that the Galatians have been bewitched. They have been... They have been placed under the evil spell of the false teachers who are trying to draw them back into the law. And he says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, that is the truth of the gospel that they heard, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. What Paul is saying is, that these Galatians, as they listen to the false teachers, they have been bewitched by the seducing false doctrine of these false teachers. But he says, you have been seduced, you have been bewitched, but we have proclaimed Christ. In fact, the word they're proclaimed or portrayed is actually placarded, that they have placarded the truth of Jesus Christ. That is, they have placarded Christ as crucified. They have proclaimed him as the crucified Lord. The gospel, central to the understanding of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ died and died for sinners. If there's any doubt that the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is the death of Christ, then we need only to look at what Paul says to the Corinthians. For the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 8 says this, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. I, I declare to you the gospel that I preach. You receive it. Well, Paul, what is the gospel? Someone may ask. And then Paul goes on to tell them. He says to them that this gospel that he preached, the gospel... That saves them, he says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that is of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, that he was seen by the twelve, and the twelve here refers to the, the, the disciples themselves, it's a technical term for the disciples. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remains to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now Simon Gathercole, the Cambridge New Testament theologian, points out that when we read often in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 8, we generally resort to this text as proof of the resurrection of Jesus. And that is true. Here Paul gives us ample proof that Christ rose. 
But you need to realize that Paul begins chapter 15 with an explanation of the gospel that he preached. He says, this is the gospel that I preach and that you received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. So for Paul, the gospel that he preached in Corinth includes the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. What I'm arguing then that in these first 10 verses, in particular in verse 3, in, and, and four of Galatians chapter one, Paul already begins to tell us the gospel includes the death of Christ. But I think that there is something else that needs to be considered as we think of this, particularly reading Galatians chapter one, verse three. You will notice that when Paul talks about Christ having given himself for our sins, that he mentions that the one who gave himself for us is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 1, in verse 3 of Galatians 1, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. And there is then an implication. That is, the reason the death of Christ was efficacious, effective, it is because the one who went to the cross was not just man but he was the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not suggest in any sense that, that God could die, that the Son of God who is immortal and invisible could ever die. We will not suggest that. But what we want you to understand is that it was as God and man that Christ went to the cross. And though he's, he died in terms of his humanity, it is God who offered a sacrifice for us on the cross. And so it's very interesting that the Apostle Paul could refer to this in Galatians, in Galatians 6 verse 14, he refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us, he says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says something very well, far stronger than that in writing to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Paul says to them there in, 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 in Acts 20 Paul and verse 28, he says to the elders of the church there of Ephesus, he says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Take care to shepherd the church of God, which God purchased with his own blood. The reality is that when Christ went to the cross, he went as the God-man. He had two natures, divine and human. He died in terms of his human nature. But on the cross, God was present in Jesus Christ. And it is because it is God who offered to God the Father, God the Son, who offered to God the Father a sacrifice was on the cross. It is because of this reason that his sacrifice is acceptable and perfect. We need to understand that. And secondly, we need to recognize from at least verse 4 of Galatians 1, that the death of Christ was considered by God to be the final payment for sin. Paul says, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. And what Paul means is that Christ did not merely die on the cross, but he died as a payment. He died to make satisfaction for sins. The, the, the implication that follows naturally, it is precisely that because we were incapable of pleasing God. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they fell into sin, but they could not drag themselves out. And you read the entire history, biblical history. What you see is man constantly being dragged down by sin. He's in a murky place and he cannot help himself. And so Christ, the God-man, comes and he gave himself for our sins. The final payment to compensate God for our iniquities. The cross of Jesus Christ is at the heart of the gospel. Well, if the good news of the gospel concerns itself with the death and resurrection of Christ for our sins, the good news of the gospel, according to chapter 1 and following, entails the marvelous benefits of Christ, the benefits that he accomplished for his people. If good news is not always good news, and at least we read in the papers or people tell us, so the benefits we gain in life are not always benefits. You talk to some people and they've been years in a company working, wanting to get up to the, the fifth floor where the corporate people sit. These guys have windows looking outside, they're not in a little cubicle, locked in a little space where they're claustrophobic. No, no, they're looking outside. They may even have a water fountain right beside them. And this guy has been working for years. He wants to get up to the corporate floor. And eventually he gets there. His bosses notice him. He promotes him. And he gets to the corporate floor. He's given a new office. Given a cell phone. But what happens? He's right under the nose of the boss. Now, that's a blessing. But perhaps it could be a curse. You know, he can't go watch the latest upload to YouTube. He, he, he doesn't have the freedom now to do the little things he was doing when his boss couldn't see him. He's under the nose of the boss. And by the way, he has a phone. The boss can reach him even on vacation. If he turns off his phone, he may be fired, you see. So the blessing, the promotion, with the, new, the, the, the new position, the, the money that comes with it, also brings with it strings attached. But the gospel concerns not only the death of Christ for our sins, it concerns benefits, real benefits, benefits, which are outright benefits that Christ accomplished for us. In other words, you cannot understand the gospel until you understand the benefits of Christ's death. What I'm saying is that the, 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 the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, must be a recognition of the benefits of Christ. That's my second point. Well, what are the benefits that Christ accomplished for his people, which is at the heart of the gospel? I want to list three of them as they develop in the passage here, beginning in chapter 1 and throughout Galatians. The first benefit of the gospel we would name as redemption. And that is a, a fancy term. 
It is a biblical term, but it simply means deliverance. In fact, Paul refers to this in verse 4, Galatians 1. He says that Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. That is the first benefit that Christ gained for us is deliverance, freedom, an escape, a rescue from this evil world and the curse and the judgment of God which hangs over this world. Paul will go on to to point out that we have received in Christ's death this benefit of redemption or deliverance. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Paul uses this language of redemption. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed everyone who hangs on a tree. And Paul is quoting here from Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. Paul was making the point that those who are attempting to live by the law, by keeping the law, abide under the curse of God. In, in, he's making this point that those who are seeking to live by keeping the law are under the curse of God because fundamentally no one can keep the law perfectly. And wherever there is disobedience to the law, the law brings a curse. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ, however, has come and that he has redeemed us from the curse and the condemnation of the law. And he says that the reason you know that it is because Christ hung on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 makes it plain that if a man was a covenant breaker, he was to be hung on a tree so that people could look at him and say, this man is a covenant breaker. He has violated the covenant of God with Israel. And by hanging there, it was a symbol to all of Israel that this man was cursed of God. He was not just a criminal, he was one cursed by God. When Christ, therefore, went to the cross, when he hung on a pole, it symbolizes that he was cursed. But he had done no wrong. It means that he was cursed for our sins. He was cursed in our place. You see, there is this exchange. Our Lord Jesus Christ became our substitute. He took our curse because we broke the law. And he redeemed us from the curse of the law. He delivered us from God's judgment by himself bearing God's judgment upon his person on the cross. And Paul will pursue this language of redemption in chapter 4 where he says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The language that he uses in Galatians 3, to redeem, comes from the word agora. This word redeem comes from agora, and agora simply means marketplace, the place where you buy and sell things. What Christ did was that he bought us. He freed us from God's condemnation through the law by being condemned in our place. The gospel, the good news of the gospel, entails the marvelous benefits that Christ accomplished for us. And the first benefit is that of rescue, redemption, deliverance. He purchased us from God's wrath. It means that as God's children, we are never ever again to be condemned. That when we stand before God, which Every man, woman, boy, and girl will certainly do on the day of judgment. 
that you and I will have to give an account to him. But when we come before him, we will come knowing that we are not condemned because Christ was condemned already in our place. That's good news. That's excellent news. But the gospel that Paul proclaimed to the Galatians does not only include then the marvelous blessing of redemption or deliverance, it includes this marvelous blessing of justification. Here, the language of justification means to declare righteous. Paul uses the verb dikaio eight times in Galatians. It's the language of the courtroom. It's the language of justice. It means to be declared by God to be righteous. It's a legal verdict that God pronounces and pronounces based on the work of Jesus Christ. Now Paul introduces the second blessing in Galatians chapter 2. We're not going to develop any of these merits or works of Christ because we are going to move through this book by God's grace. But let me point out to you that Paul talks about this. In fact, you can see that justification is also one of the benefits of the gospel because Paul tells us, he says this in Galatians 2, 14 to 16, he says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, Paul says they were not talking about Peter, particularly here, they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, and then he's going to explain what the truth of the gospel contains. He says, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the law, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Well, the context of this expression is, of course, Peter, who had gone among the Gentiles, and he was eating with them, fellowshipping with them. And then there arrived Judaizers, these fellows who said, we believe in Christ, but you have to keep the law to be saved. When they arrived, Peter withdrew and didn't want to eat with the Gentiles. And the implication there was if the Gentiles then are to be accepted as God's people on, same, on the same level with Jewish Christians, then they had to keep these laws. And Paul says, Paul says you're not being straight with, in, 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 in regards to the truth of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel declares that one is justified, that is legally declared by God to be righteous, not on the basis of keeping the law, but on the basis of trust and faith in Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous on the basis of believing in Jesus Christ. You see, this good news of the gospel doesn't just tell us that Christ delivered us from God's wrath and anger by becoming a curse for us, but this gospel tells us that in Jesus Christ, any and all who believe are instantaneously and permanently declared justified, righteous in the sight of God, a status that can never be revoked. 
That's the truth. That's the blessing of the gospel. That we are declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. But according to Paul, there is a third blessing that comes in the gospel. And he points to this later in Galatians 6 verse 15. He says, for in Christ... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avail anything but a, new, but a new creation. For the Apostle Paul, the third blessing of the gospel is a new creation. I think that Paul means by this that the gospel brings us new life. We are changed. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things are passed away and all things have now become new. But the new creation of which Paul speaks refers to a new reality. A new reality in which we now have the Spirit of God. We have a new relationship with God. We have, new, we have the prospect of new bodies. But, but indeed, Paul says, whether a person is circumcised or not circumcised, that is not really important. What, really is, what is really important is a new creation. That is, we have now entered into a new age. And we belong to the new heavens and earth. We are new people. And we have been given this great blessing of belonging to the new heavens and the new earth. These are the blessings then of the gospel. That we have been redeemed. That we have been bought back from the wrath of God. That we have been declared just or righteous inside of God. And that we have now become participants in the new creation. What are my two then main points regarding the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel, first of all, is concerned with this central truth that Christ died for our sins and rose again. But the gospel also entails the marvelous blessings that Christ accomplished for us. Blessings of deliverance, Blessings of justification and blessings of the new creation. But there's a third thing and a final thing that we need to speak of with regard to the gospel according to Paul. The good news of the gospel entails thirdly the divine call to live in the, in the grace of Christ. I want to take you back to this opening defense of the gospel as Paul have it before us in verse 6. He says, I marvel, chapter 1, verse 6, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Now, what I want you to note is that Paul contrasts the expression, him who called you into the grace of Christ, he contrasts this expression with a different gospel. What it means is that for the apostle Paul, him who calls you into the grace of Christ is part and parcel of the gospel. Because he says it is different from that other gospel that the false teachers were teaching in Galatia. It leads us then to, to say that the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, entails a divine call. Paul can tell us that he was called by God later on in this chapter, in verse 15 of Galatians chapter 1, that God calls. The gospel involves a call by God. And we are not now talking about the external and general call of the gospel. 
There is a call in the gospel that goes to all men, to all peoples, that they must repent and believe the gospel. But the gospel consists of an effective call, a call that is invested with the power of God that changes lives. And Paul says that they were turning away from him who called them, that is to call them powerfully into the grace of Christ. They have been called by God. And Paul says they have been called by God into the grace of Christ. And one commentator says this means that they have been called to enter into and to live in the grace of Christ. They have been called to the grace of Christ. Now some, some interpret this, 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 this phrase that they have been called by the grace of Christ. And that, that, is, a, that is a possible translation. But it is more natural to read it. They have been called into the grace of Christ as we have in the New King James. They have been called into this realm of grace. In Romans 5, Paul could tell them that they now stand in grace. You see, the gospel involves a mighty, powerful call where the Lord calls us and removes us from darkness and places us in the realm of grace. A realm, in the realm of grace where we now live. And this place, this state of grace in which we live is synonymous with the state of freedom to which God has called us. For Paul tells us that God called them into grace in chapter 1. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says that God has called them into liberty. He says, for you brethren have been called to liberty only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What that means then is that God has called us into grace, and the, and the call into grace is a call into a life of liberty, where we are no longer under the ritual commands of the Old Testament. We are not to be enslaved to days and, and, and circumcision and so on. But, but also they have been called to be saints, Paul tells the Corinthians in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2, they've been called into fellowship with Christ. He tells them in, in the same chapter in verse 9. They've been called into hope in Ephesians 4 verse 4. And they've been called ultimately to the kingdom of glory. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12. What are we then to say of the gospel as a summary? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, tells us that Christ died on our behalf. And that he secured marvelous blessings and that God indeed has called us into marvelous grace my dear friends we must acquaint ourselves with the good news of the gospel it, it is our business to know this good news we, we hear of good news like the birth of a baby or the graduation of our children and relatives from university and these are all the things that make us happy yet none of these good news can be compared to the good news that Christ has come and died for undeserving sinners as we are my friends the gospel tells us what we need to know that the Lord of glory died for our sins to deliver us from the coming wrath of God. 
The good news tells us that when Christ died, he secured great benefits like redemption, like forgiveness, like justification, like the new heavens and the new earth. Just recently I was conversing with one of the older pastors in the ministry and he points out in that conversation that the gospel is beyond anything we can describe. We can never fully capture the majesty of the gospel. How is it that we are born into this world and we come into the world as sinners? We inherited sin from our foreparents. We live in sin. And even when we are saved by the grace of God, we are never totally free from sin. We still fail. We still make mistakes. We still grieve God. We are saved, but we are still sinners. And yet, we die, and we go to heaven. We enter the heavenly Jerusalem and take our place amongst the spirits of just men made perfect. What does what, what the writer of Hebrew mean? It means that when we die, even though we are imperfect, when we stand before God, our spirits are perfected. All sin is removed. How does God do that? He does it because Christ paid for our sins. Because Christ bore our curse. Because Christ declares us righteous by giving us his perfect righteousness. Which enables us to stand before God acceptable. We need to acquaint ourselves with this good news. That there is life and liberty and hope to be found alone in Jesus Christ. This is the news that transcends every earthly news. That there is great grace to be found in Jesus. Grace for this life and grace for the life to come. My friends, there is nothing that you can ever touch or read or meditate upon that will ever transcend the good news that Jesus died for sinners. The gospel tells you what you need to know about what Christ did. It tells you what you need to do. How do you receive these great benefits of Jesus Christ? It is only by faith. J.I. Packer in his introduction to John Owen's death of death has a marvelous explanation of the gospel in that introductory paragraph or introductory uh, part of the, the book. He says that faith means that we must recognize ourselves to be sinners and that we must recognize, secondly, that Christ died for sinners. He says that we are to abandon our self-righteousness and our self-confidence and we are to cast ourselves on Jesus Christ alone and upon his mercy. We are to exchange our natural rebellion for this joyful and grateful submission to the will of Christ by the renewing of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is that faith 
means that we must come to Christ and realize that he died for sinners and because we are sinners, we have our hope in him. We may claim the benefits of forgiveness and justification and all the things that he secured for us. You must know the gospel, which is Christ, his death and resurrection and the benefits he procured for us. But we must obey the gospel. We must obey the gospel. We must believe in Christ. Thirdly, we must exhibit fidelity to the gospel. You and I, in this world, face similar problems to the Galatians. We must always battle against the temptation to corrupt the gospel. The temptation to bend the gospel, to distort the gospel. And we have false gospels. We have at least three that we can identify rapidly. The first of these false gospels that we must defend against is the false gospel of legalism. It is the most subtle of them all. Because very often, as Paul would tell the Galatians, we get into the Christian faith by believing we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But then we live as though we are living by works. That by our good works, by our obedience, somehow we are more acceptable to God. It's the false gospel of legalism. You see, you are saved by grace and you live only by grace. And if you do anything that is good, it is only because God has been working within you to do according to his will and pleasure. You see, salvation from first to last is by grace. There's nothing to be said about what we are able to produce. We bring nothing to this matter of salvation, but simply take what Christ has provided. Both justification and sanctification are gifts that come from the cross of Christ. We must defend against legalism. We must defend against the false doctrine of materialism. There are many today who place the emphasis upon what Christ has done to deliver us from poverty and from sickness and from diseases. And I am not here to dispute that Christ's death will eventually deliver us from all poverty and all diseases. But let us be very clear that the death of Jesus Christ is not first and foremost to deliver us from from poverty or from sickness, but to deliver us from sin. That's the sickness. That's the sickness which is indeed the cause of all other sicknesses. That's why Christ came. We must be careful that we do not distort the gospel by turning to this notion that the cross is there for our material gain. The third false gospel that we must guard against is antinomianism. And that is the false teaching that we may be saved by grace and live as we please. That is indeed, Christ saves us once, saved, always saved, regardless of how we live. All of these require us to resist them. We must exhibit this fidelity to the gospel. And we do that by resisting false teachings. But we do so by being living worthy of the gospel. Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 1 verse 27 that we are to walk worthy of the gospel. 
But we are to show fidelity not only by living worthy of the gospel, but by proclaiming the good news. Listen, my dear friends, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You and I must realize that you have the only good news in the world. That of all the religions, they are talking about what they must do to be saved. But you know you have a religion which is a done religion. Christ did it all. You, you, you have something to say to a bankrupt and dying world. That there is true hope to be found in Jesus who died for sinners. And if you are to preach this gospel, you must tell the world about what Christ did. You must indeed extol the virtues of Christ. You must speak of the achievements of Jesus that are incomparable. That Christ, by his death, has brought us deliverance from the law and from curse. He has justified us, given us righteousness as a gift, and he has given us heaven itself. What I'm saying, my friends, is if you are to preach the gospel, you must put before the world. You must hold up before the world the banner of Christ and tell men what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And my dear friends, if you are to be faithful to this gospel, you must praise God and thank him for the cross and for Jesus. You must remember that even though you have problems at home, and maybe you have problems at work, and maybe you have problems with your children and your neighbors, you may even have troubles financially. But whatever your troubles are, if you are in Jesus Christ, your greatest trouble has been fixed and fixed forever. You have been delivered from eternal condemnation because of Jesus Christ. That indeed the troubles of this world are nothing compared to the troubles you would have faced if Christ had not come, if Christ had not died for sins. You are to rejoice therefore in the midst of all of your hardship that Jesus loved you and came into this world and paid for your sins and achieved eternal, incomparable, infinite blessings. May God help you to love the gospel, to support it, to pray for its run and course in this world, to be there to proclaim it, and to love and to cherish its preaching and exposition. May God give you a heart for this news, the greatest news, the news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead for Jesus' sake.